I have looked forward to this class since May when Alan uh, put it on the schedule, and I've revised the lessons about three times, and I may revise them again depending on your input tonight. So, so I want to really invite your participation. Uh, think about what we're speaking about, what your experience is, what questions you have, what needs to be expanded, uh, what doesn't make sense. Let, let me uh, hear from you about that. The origin of this class began last year when I was driving in the car somewhere and there was a radio interviewer or interview taking place and the person being interviewed was Josh McDowell. Some of you may recognize his name. When I was in college, he uh, came out with a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which was reasons for trusting in the Bible and the God of the Bible, for having confidence in faith. And he had come out with a new book entitled God Breathed. And as soon as I, I heard about him describe the contents, I ordered it. It's pretty easy to read. It doesn't take long. I think you would benefit from reading God Breathed. It's, it's listed at the top of your handout. Uh, it is uh, essentially talking about why the scriptures are reliable, why as Christians we can have confidence in the Bible as we have it now, being a faithful rendering of the original that was written 2,000 years ago as a reflection from eyewitnesses about what Jesus taught, what he did, what he said, what he was like, and then the expansion of that in the letters of the New Testament. But in the uh, book presenting reasons for our confidence in faith, as I read the book, as I listed seven topics uh, from that uh, material that we could talk about over the next seven weeks, the song, How Firm a Foundation, kept coming to my mind. And then as I reflected on that for a while, I changed the title. I was originally just going to call it why is scripture important and how can how can we rely on it or something like that? So uh, I came up with invincible because I'm that confident about our content, our rendering, our reliability of the Bible that we have. Heads up. I'm going to talk about the tests for reliability in session seven. So if that's all you want to hear about, you can just wait and come back in six weeks and we'll be doing lesson seven and we'll talk about the tests for reliability. And the bottom line is there is more evidence using this very same criteria that secular scholars use to determine the reliability of any document from the ancient world. Think Herodotus, Iliad and Odyssey, others, the very same tests when applied to the Bible, the information that's available for those other documents that nobody questions pales in comparison to the mountain of evidence that there is to have confidence in, especially the New Testament, but including the Old Testament as well. So one way that I would like to to state the purpose that I have for this class, I could say I intended to give people of faith confidence in the Bible as the foundation for faith. 
I could say that I want you to feel that you don't have to take second place to anybody if they ask questions or make critical comments about the Bible. I would even like to think that after listening to this information and, and interacting with it, you would feel better equipped to respond when somebody that you're in conversation with has a, a question or a comment or just expresses doubt. But instead, the way I'm going to say it is, I hope that by six weeks from now at the end of class, you will be able to sing the words to how firm a foundation with absolute conviction and with understanding of the words. This is an old song. It's page two of your handout. It's an old song that I didn't appreciate uh, until I, I prepared this uh, series of studies. But look at the first two lines. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. It is expressing the faith that Christians ought to have, do have, and should have in the contents of the word of God. So in one of the sessions, we're just going to think about what does it mean that this is the word of God? What does it mean to hear the voice of God? Another session, we'll talk about inspiration. How is it that human beings writing in their circumstances express the words of God. What do we mean by inspiration? How is the Bible unique? Tonight we'll talk about why the question is important. The promise of God in verse 2, I, I am thy God and will still give thee aid. In the last part of the third verse, that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never no, never, no, never forsake. Those are the promises of God in Scripture. So if you've sung this song a hundred times, but you haven't paid attention to the words, I hope you will. <clears throat> my, my intention is that we'll sing it every week for six weeks. And maybe, as you associate the content of the lesson, it will have that kind of meaning for the community of faith. Let's see. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said? You to Jesus for refuge and not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. I, I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand up I'll never 
Apologetics doesn't mean saying you're sorry for something. It's based on Greek words. That means a reasoned defense of a position, a belief, a statement. Uh, for example, the book of Acts has an underlying apologetic purpose as Luke is defending the Christian faith in terms of the Roman Empire and those who were suspicious about Christians. And so he has several instances when Christians interact with government officials in a positive way. When there is some kind of civil disturbance, it isn't the Christians who cause it, but their opponents who cause it. But some people think that apologetics is a waste of time. Surprisingly, even people within the community of faith, they say, well, God doesn't need us to defend him. He, he can take care of himself. All we need to do is believe. Isn't our stance based on faith? rather than reason or facts. Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Doesn't that mean that there's a disjunction between faith and reason? Faith doesn't have to have reason to support it. Faith is just a matter of deep conviction. You cast your lot. You take your stand. You say, well, I'll take Pascal's wager. It's better to believe, and if God doesn't exist, well, then you've had a better life then to not believe and then if God does exist, well, then you're in bad shape. I obviously disagree with that approach, so we're going to be talking about apologetics, but not just that. As I say, I'm going to wait till the end of the study to talk about reasons to believe. I want to talk about some other things about faith that I hope will enlarge our understanding and appreciation of the Bible itself. But let me give you one story from God Breathe that Josh McDowell tells. He was speaking to a university history class, room full of people, big lecture hall. The professor was sitting over in the corner having introduced uh, Dr. McDowell. He sat down. So McDowell said this, the New Testament has more supporting evidence for its truth than the total of all the other books from antiquity that we know anything about. The professor started snorting, chortling, laughing, groaning from his chair. Room still full of people. Well, uh, as McDowell tells the story, he says this had happened to him before, so he was prepared. So he just turned to the professor and said, Professor, what evidence do you have? What, what evidence can you present to support your skepticism about the Bible? Total silence. No evidence. He didn't have any reasons whatsoever. He was simply repeating a popular skeptical opinion about the Bible. Some of you will remember 
uh, at Christmas of 1968 when Life magazine published a cover story. Uh, and in the article suggested that there were thousands of mistakes in the Bible. So people should be cautious, skeptical about the contents of what the Bible teaches. Nobody bothered to offer evidence or to question it. People just repeated it. And unfortunately, in the culture we live in, repeat something often enough, it becomes truth. The truth is, most skeptics have not investigated, haven't read the Bible. Some of them have read it, but they haven't investigated its contents or its purpose. One of the things that we want to think about is, what is the purpose of the Bible after all? But in the case of my own experience, I teach comparative religions at MUS, and when we study Christianity, I have them to read a chapter from a little book by Paul Little called Know Why You Believe. And the chapter is about the reliability of Scripture. And the thing that impresses me is, uh, having looked at, at three or four standard texts on apologetics, they all say about the same thing. The arguments are the same. It hasn't changed in 60 or 70 years. And still, the objectors are objecting about things that they really don't know what they're talking about. Well, one of the other questions that I want you to think about with me in this series is, is there any difference in the Bible and other books that claim to be scripture? The Bhagavad Gita from Hinduism, or the collection of the sayings of Gautama Buddha for Buddhism, or the Quran. Islam. The Quran even talks about Jesus. Jesus is named either by his proper name or by references that makes it clear that's who it is more than a hundred times. Of course, the Quran says that Jesus wasn't divine, that he didn't die on the cross. Somebody else did. He was born of a virgin and he did ascend into heaven. But he wasn't divine at all. So, why believe the Bible as an exclusive revelation of God versus other things that claim to be Scripture? That is an important question for us. What I'm especially concerned about for the community of faith is that we have Scripture to be alive for us that it communicates something to us that cannot be found anywhere else, and that it gives us contact with the God who made us that is not available anywhere else. This isn't an entirely human endeavor. Scripture itself makes it clear that our understanding, our growth in knowledge, our appreciation of the truths of Scripture are aided by the Spirit himself. So it is a divine human cooperation. But I'm concerned that for too many of us, Scripture doesn't live. I'll talk about this on down the line, but um, Eugene Peterson, who is the author of the message, paraphrase, said that part of our disadvantage in the post-printing press world is that the Bible comes to us as a book. And 
what does book mean to us? Especially something that's as wide-ranging as the Bible is. We almost tend to treat the Bible as an encyclopedia. It's a reference book. You go to it to find answers. You go to it to get information. You go to it to answer some question that you have that, that is really deep and meaningful. But the problem with an encyclopedia... Have you ever read an encyclopedia from cover to cover? <laughs> I've heard of people who do that. I really wonder about their sanity. <laughs> The Bible is intended to be read, but you, first of all, you're not going to read for very long something that presents itself as a truth and you don't believe it's true. But second, if you don't believe it's meaningful. Uh, I read an article from last month's AARP <coughs> magazine. Yes, I'm old enough to get that in the way. It was uh, a one-page essay by Teller. You know, Penn and Teller, the comedy magician team. Teller says that he fell in love with magic when he was five years old watching the Howdy Do Show, Howdy Doody Show, and Clarabelle the Clown would do magic. And he says he just fell in love with it right then. And he learned how to do magic tricks. And in college, he would entertain people. And when he met with, with uh, Penn, they formed a team. And he said he's much better at it today than he was when he was 30. Get, get the hint about growth over time as you keep doing something. He's 69, and he says, I can't imagine retiring. Can you imagine doing something for that long in your life and not wanting to stop? What is it that created that link for him from 5 to 69 and he's better than he was and he doesn't want to stop? He says, I fell in love with that stuff. If we can't love the Bible and the voice in the Bible, God's voice, chances are we're not going to spend enough time with it to grow in it. Chances are we won't be wanting more when we're past retirement age. That's my hope for uh, all of us in this, in this session. What we think about God has everything to do with how we read the Bible, His Word. There's several places that the Bible talks about the importance of our concept of God. Romans 1, Paul says that when people who knew God gave up the knowledge of God and changed the glory of God into created things like human beings and reptiles and birds, creeping things, when they did that, then the very next thing that happened is their ethics went straight down the tubes and society became what we read about the ancient world what we often experience in the modern world. When people don't believe that God is involved and what they think about God is not that he is concerned and holds us accountable, then bad things happen. Well, it's true about how we read the Bible as well. So if, if would you believe, this isn't a new idea, I, I was taught this in graduate school, that the kind of parents you have 
tend to influence the way you think of God, especially your father. It was easy for me to identify with God as our Father in heaven, as Jesus referred to him. Because my parents were godly and their lives were consistent with the truth that my dad taught from the pulpit, that my mother lived, that she taught in Sunday school. They treated us with, I mean, they held us responsible. They expected certain things from us, and they disciplined us when necessary, but it was always with unconditional love. And so as I was thinking about that, just there flashed in my mind something that happened when I was uh, probably a 17-year-old driver, maybe maybe 16, young, inexperienced driver. Uh, we had gone to a youth rally a couple hours away, we're driving back, and I was driving, and we were involved in a fender bender. Both cars were drivable, and everybody was okay. But all the way home, I was thinking how many yards I was going to have to mow to pay to fix that car. I mean, the summer just stretched longer and longer. It was going to be just an unhappy summer. And that night after dinner, my dad, I don't know if he saw me, uh, just downcast, but he, it was like he had been overhearing my thoughts. He came and said, you take care of your responsibilities, which is study hard, do well in school. I'll take care of the car. That's my responsibility. It's not hard for me to picture a God of grace. But not everybody has that kind of parenting. Not everybody was raised in a home that valued the things of God in a, in a high, meaningful way. And still, they have a deep, abiding, and growing faith. We know them in church, among the people of God. To me, that's proof that the church has a vital function in supplying what people may not get in their growing up years. The church needs to be that example, that encouragement, that pointer to faith as it is rooted in the words of God. <clears throat> so the way we think of God has everything to do with the way we read Scripture. If your parents held you accountable for every slip-up, if they let you know how disappointed they were, if all we heard was, well, if you only knew how disappointed I am, I can't tell you how much more I expected out of you than that. If that's all we ever heard, then chances are we're going to look at the God of the Bible as a judge who holds us accountable for everything and will definitely punish us at the end of the day because you don't get away with anything. So the Bible then becomes a list of rules, regulations, and we are held accountable to every one of them. Is that the way the Bible presents God. 
if you read the Bible for what it says about God, when Jesus, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, he says twice in that one paragraph, once before the Lord's Prayer and once after, that your Father knows what you need even before you ask it. And you are more valuable than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field that God himself takes care of. What kind of God is that? The God who knows your needs and provides them, who considers you more valuable than the things that he has made in creation. What kind of revelation is he going to speak, to leave, to give, to guide? What does the Bible say? about God himself. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. He is a father to the fatherless, defender of widows, God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. The Old Testament knows a God who cares for the defenseless the orphans and the widows in particular. He is not a harsh, legalistic, law-giving judge. The Gospel of John has Jesus saying to the disciples the last night he was uh, on the earth, he is a father who shows love to those who love the Son and, quote, we will come to him and make our home with him says in that same place, I will not leave you as orphans. The song we just sang, I, I am thy God, and I will still give you aid. That view of God doesn't mesh well with the idea of the Bible as a list of rules. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119, you know what Psalm 119 is about? It's a hymn of praise to the word of God, to his law, to his decrees. And you read that entire psalm and you don't find one negative feeling toward God's law, his decrees, his expressed will. There are 22 sections in that psalm, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's called an acrostic. Here's some of the things that Psalm 119 says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. That's verse 9. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Verse 32. I run in the path of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. That may not communicate to you as well as it would have been. There weren't any interstate highways or even paved roads then. Most of the tracks were worn paths and there could easily be ruts and rocks and roots so you had to walk carefully so when he says I run in the path of your commandments he's saying this is a smooth landscaped road for me to follow verses 47 and 48 for I delight in your commands because I love them 
I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. God's law brings delight and liberty and love. It isn't a burden. It isn't harsh. Isn't that the kind of relationship you want to have with the Word of God? 